Well, go ahead and take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, Head towards the end of your Bible. If you see the book of James, you've gone too far. Hebrews is a relatively large book, um, so you you shouldn't miss it. It comes right after Titus and Philemon, and then Hebrews... Um, And then the book of James after Hebrews, if you see any one of those, go the other direction and you'll be good. Hebrews chapter 4 is where we'll be this morning. This is maybe not a a text that seems like one for Christmas, but but we're going to tackle it anyways. And we're going to look at it. Uh, We're going to look at verses 14 through 16 in particular this morning of Hebrews chapter 4. And we're going to unpack these verses and we're going to think a little bit about what the Lord has for us. As we've studied through Advent, we've seen, we've looked at the first couple chapters of the book of Luke, in particular the the three major poetic sections that we find in the book of Luke, uh, the prophecies and songs that are sung by characters that we meet there, by Mary, the mother of Jesus and by Zechariah and by Simeon, who Blaise preached to us about last week. And we, and we looked at those because what we're doing is we're celebrating the coming of Christ, just like those three were doing. When we get to Advent in 2017, um, we're celebrating the coming of Christ. That's what Advent means. Advent means coming. And we worship God during this time because of his generosity shown to us. Christmas is about generosity, right? That's not a hard thing for us to get our minds around. We as people, we give gifts. We show up on on Christmas Eve or, or Christmas Day or whenever we get together as a family and we give gifts to people around us. Christmas is about generosity. But sometimes our minds don't go farther than the gift that we're giving. And we don't always go to the ultimate gift giver of all the good things that we have in our lives. So we need to think and we need to process, and this text hopefully will help us process a little bit about how God is generous towards us. Maybe not necessarily the process leading up to it, but it will certainly give us a glimpse of um, God's generosity shown to us right here, right now, in Jamestown, North Dakota in 2017. So the question we have to ask ourselves out of the gate when we come to Christmas is, how is God generous towards us? How is God generous towards us? Well, it's simply this. You and I are in desperate need of getting back to God. Um, We were created for relationship with him, and yet that was broken because of our sin and our sinfulness. And there was this big gap that was opened. It's kind of like you and I have to get to Neptune. Neptune is 2.7 billion miles away. How do you get to Neptune? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't think we can. I don't think we can get to Neptune. And even if we could, why would you want to go to Neptune? I heard it's pretty cold there. But 2.7 billion miles away, but we, we, we can measure that distance. We can look at Neptune and however people do that, I don't know. But they, we measure that distance, 2.7 billion miles away. But when, one thing that we cannot measure is the distance between God and us because of our sin and because of our sinfulness. And so at Christmas, we celebrate that infinite gap between God and us has been bridged, and it's been bridged through God's generosity shown to us in Christ Jesus, in sending his son who was born in a manger. But there's so much more to the story than just that. Jesus came to bring us back to God, to bridge that gap. And hopefully this text will help us understand a little bit what's going on now and why Christmas is so important. So if you're in Hebrews chapter 4 with me, look at verses 14 through 16. I'll read these aloud. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. 
For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive help and mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you have kids, if you have young kids, or if you have had young kids, you understand that. My kids are right here, four and three, and the other one's back there. But um, you understand that as time goes on, um, and as they begin to watch TV shows and movies, they love to binge watch. They don't binge watch like a season of a TV show. They just want to watch the same episode over and over and over again, or the same movie over and over and over again. And for our while, and we actually had a resurgence this weekend, it was Moana. They loved the movie Moana. I'm not sure what it is about Moana that they love, but they loved Moana. And so the first time I watched that movie, I was just like, oh yeah, this is great. Another kid's movie, kind of annoying, whatever. I sat through it with them because they're my children and because I love them. <laughs> but as the kids demanded to watch it, and, and we, then we started listening to the music, and they were 24-7, they wanted to listen to the soundtrack and listen to the songs. And so we started to, we started to listen, and I started to pay a little bit more attention to what was going on in the story. And so, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm assuming that most of you probably haven't seen the movie um, because it's a kid's movie, but if you, if you haven't seen the movie, I'm going to give you plot points, some things that you need to know uh, that will hopefully help us tie in here. At the beginning of the film, you learn that Tefiti, she's the giver of life, she has her heart stolen by the demigod Maui, and we all know the name Maui because we'd love to go there right now. Um, the heart is lost. Tefiti's heart is lost, stolen by Maui. A thousand years later, the heart finds its way to this girl on this island. Her name is Moana. <laughs> Moana's island finds itself in sort of a desperate state. Things are dying. The things that they need, the materials that they need for their life, and the food that they need is, is corrupted, and it's cursed, and it's turning black, and it's no longer edible or usable. And Moana understands then in that moment what she must do. She understands that, that she must go. She has to convince Maui to accompany her to take the heart of Tefiti and restore it back to her, the giver of life. And so they go on this adventurous journey and she finds Tefiti and she gives, uh, gives her the heart. And there's this, there's this really powerful scene in this children's movie. I'm saying a powerful scene, maybe, maybe that's just me. But it's this really powerful scene where she restores the heart to Tefiti when she understands who Tefiti is and she gives it back to her. And she sings this, I'm not going to sing it for you, but she sings these words. She says this, I have crossed the horizon to find you. I know your name. They have stolen the heart from inside you, but this does not define you. This is not who you are. You know who you are. Our friends, this is, a, this is a picture of redemption. This is a picture of redemption, and I love that. And when I actually listened to that for the first time, it brought me to tears because of the incredibly profound connection that we see here, even between our text in Hebrews and the all of redemptive history that we see laid out before us in Scripture. Our problem, that gap that we talked about that existed between us and God exists because our heart has been stolen from within, inside of us. It's been corrupted by sin. 
Now, when we think about sin, we think about the bad things that we do. That's how we regularly in our culture and in society think about sin. We think about bad stuff that we do. When we say sin, we think about the time that we got upset with our wife or, or the lust that we, that we had towards a, a woman who wasn't our wife or the, the way that we conducted ourselves at work and the way, that we, the way that we live and the things that we do oftentimes are what we say would be sinful. But the Bible tells us that we're not good people who do sometimes do bad things, but we are sinful people who sin out of our sinful state. And so rather than doing bad things because, of the, because at the very core of who we are is good, but rather we do bad things because the very core of who we are has been corrupted by sin. We sin because we're sinful. And since God cannot tolerate sin, his wrath was aimed at you and me. His wrath, God's wrath, the wrath of God was aimed at you and me. But in our place, Jesus came to wash away the bad stuff that you've done and will do here on earth. But Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the living God, did not stop there. He did not stop just washing away the sin. Having your sins taken away. We talk about the gospel here. Gospel means good news. Gospel means good news. Having your sins washed away is pretty okay news. It's not good news. It's okay news. We still have a problem. It's not the full picture of the good news of the gospel. Jesus knew that you needed something to be something that you were not. And the book of Ezekiel tells us that God intends to give us a new heart, that heart that's inside of us before Christ, that's corrupted by sin. The book of Ezekiel tells us that our heart is like stone, but he gives us, God gives us through Christ a heart of flesh, a beating heart, a healthy heart, a heart that is not dead, but a heart that is alive. So Jesus doesn't only wash away our sin, but he restores our heart to the place where it needs to be. He makes us new. We can think about many instances in the New Testament where we're told that we are a new creation. That's what this means. Something is happening inside of us. We're being made new. We're being brought alive. We're no longer dead in our trespasses and our sins. Being dead in your trespasses and sins means that you are in a sinful state and you were corrupted by sin and you needed your heart to be restored to the way that God intended it to be initially in creation. So Jesus doesn't stop at washing. He makes us a completely new creation. He crossed the horizon. The heavens, he came down. He took on the human form. He took on flesh. And he dwelt among his creatures. And this morning, the message of Christmas, a baby born in a manger, the word taking on flesh and dwelling among us. He has called us by name. He knows our name. He restores our heart. He understands our identity that needed desperately to be found in him. No longer does our sin and our sinfulness define us if we are in Christ. And now we know who we are. We must, as people, as God's people, stop laboring to find out who we are to develop our identity. If you're in Christ, God has defined who you are. 
God has defined who you are. Know who you are. And this cannot be said enough. You are not primarily a parent. You are not primarily a husband. You are not primarily a wife. You are not primarily a farmer. You are not primarily a, a, a person who works at a coffee shop or a teacher or a business person. Your identity is as, as we read in John chapter 1 at the beginning of this service, your your. Identity is as a child of God who was created to reflect his glory by being completely satisfied in him. Your identity, let me say it again, your identity is as a child of God. When you are in Christ, your identity is as a child of God who was created to reflect his glory by being completely satisfied in him. Without Jesus, we fail on every single count in that sentence. Without Jesus, we are God's enemy. We are not God's child. Without Jesus, we glorify only ourselves and our empty idols. And without Jesus, we find satisfaction in our materials, in our senses of accomplishment, in our bank accounts, in our family, you name it. We find satisfaction in all of those temporary things that burn up and ultimately blow away. And this is so what we need to, this is what we need to take away from this morning, and we'll get to this text, when we come to this text. This is what the author of Hebrews says, as a follower of Jesus, your day-to-day is a simple day-to-day. Now you're looking at me, you're thinking, my life is so complex, you have no idea how much drama I'm enduring right now. It's Christmas and there are people in my home that I I, I can't get along with and I despise because of the way they've treated me over the years. Your day-to-day is a simple one. It's either trust Jesus or trust something else. This is the major challenge that we face every day. Trust Jesus or trust something else. As we move through Advent, as we looked at the first two chapters in the book of Luke, we've seen these three characters. We've seen Mary, we've seen Zechariah, we've seen Simeon, and we've seen them respond in faith, in belief. We've seen them respond. When they receive a direct promise from God, we see that the way that they respond is important. We see Mary in simplicity and humility responding in faith. We see Zechariah, after a significant amount of coaxing, responding in faith. And we see Simeon, after much waiting and a whole lot of patience, responding in faith. And each of these people trusted God in his faithfulness to fulfill his promises. Now, we have it so much easier than those three. Because they got a word, the angel showed up and spoke to them, or Mary and Joseph come to the temple to present Jesus, and they, they present Jesus, and Simeon says, the Lord has told me this, and, and they, have it, they have all of these sort of fragments of understanding. We have a clear, defined picture of the redemption that Jesus has accomplished for us in the pages of Scripture. It's given to us right here. We don't have to look anywhere else to understand how God has accomplished redemption, how God has bought us back as his people. We have the benefit of knowing exactly how God intended and did do it. So look at Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Let's start there. The author says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. It says we have a a great high priest. 
who has passed to the heavens. Look how this verse argues too. So interesting. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. But it, it's interesting. I, the, the layout and how, how he structures his argument here. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Since then, this, let us hold fast. Let us hold fast to our confession. What are we holding fast to? This confession. What is the confession? What is the confession he's talking about? If you read the rest of the book of Hebrews or read the rest of the New Testament, you understand that this confession is very significant that he's talking about. The confession is this, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We've been studying the book of Matthew. We've been studying Sermon on the Mount for a significant amount of time now. Um, and so just call back to the book of Matthew, um, in particular to uh, chapter 18. We haven't actually looked at chapter 18, but chapter 18, verses 13 through 18. Jesus is walking with his disciples, and, and he says this to them, or Matthew records this rather. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea of Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's essentially saying, who, who, do, who does everybody think I am? Who am I? And his disciples say, Send the, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Or another say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter replied, Peter always the one who has something, on, something to say. He says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. <laughs> when Jesus says, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, the, the word rock and the word Peter are the same word there, but what Jesus is referring back to is this confession that Peter makes. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. This is what it means to be a church, to come together under the common confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is the very confession that the, that the author of Hebrews is talking to us about. Let us hold fast to our confession. Why can we do that? Because we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. We can make that confession because Jesus is our great high priest and has passed through the heavens. But what does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest? We see that and we we're saying, yeah, okay, the Bible talks about priests and things like that. What does it mean that Jesus is our great high priest? It means that Jesus has the ability to go before God and to speak a word on your behalf and so that you might understand and know who God is and to take care of our sin problem and to restore that heart that we desperately need to be restored within us. And because Jesus is the great high priest and no other high priest is ever needed because he didn't only atone or make amends for our sin through his blood, he ensured that we would never have to do it again. How? How did he do that? By recreating us, by removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh, a heart that pumps, a heart that beats blood through our veins, a heart that is healthy, a heart that is alive. And once a year, once a year, the high priest in Israel would 
take, uh, take a sacrifice and he would enter the Holy Holies on the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur. And he would enter in and he would sprinkle the blood of these sacrificed animals, a bull for atonement of the priest in his household and a goat as atonement for the rest of the people. And this would make things right for the nation of Israel for the upcoming year, both for the nation and for the individual. But Jesus did it once and for all. Nothing else is required. Jesus' sacrifice is completely sufficient. Hebrews 10, 12, and 13 says, When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So what does this mean for us? I think verses 15 and 16 tell us, and why is this important for Christmas? Verses 16 and 17 tell us, The author says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what does it mean for us? When we feel bogged down, when we feel beat up, when we feel uncertain, we hold on to one thing. One thing, one thing makes it all better. The confession that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. You don't need more information. You don't need financial security. You don't need to understand or develop your purpose more. You don't need to have things go your way. You don't need a vacation. You don't need more convenience in your life. You don't need the less hardship. You need to hold fast to the confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, because when you do that, you're trusting him for everything. And verses 15 and 16 are the proof. He gives us the the reason why this is important for us and the proof Verse 14, because we have the great high priest who has passed through the heavens. And when he says he passed through the heavens, it means that he ascended into heaven and he's ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand. So everything falls under his rule and reign. There is nothing in your life, nothing in your day-to-day that does not fall under the reign of Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. He ascended there, he's seated there. So that's happening up there, but down here on the ground level, something else is happening. The Christ, the Son of the living God, knows everything you're going through. Everything you're going through, when you feel alone, when you feel broken, when you feel beat up by the world, and when there is so much drama in your household at Christmas time, Jesus Christ knows everything you're going through. He knows what it's like to live in a world with sinful people, He knows what it's like to be slandered, He knows what it's like to be tempted to lose it when he's slandered. He lived in flesh that experienced urges and desires, and yet he did not indulge. He had to properly respond to death and suffering to an infinitely greater degree than you or I will ever experience in this life. He knows all the temptations that we do, what the author tells us, but without sin. And then we are invited to reassume our right relationship with God. The relationship that we were created for. 
the relationship that Adam and Eve had with God in the garden as they walked with him in the cool of the day. But we could only have it through the newness offered to us in Christ Jesus, both our sins washed away and our heart restored. And so it's Christmas Eve morning. It's Christmas Eve morning. And the question is, so what? So what? We're coming to celebrate. And this text seems strange that we would go here on Christmas Eve morning. But, the, the, but the, we're celebrating the coming of Jesus. And, and the coming of Jesus is more than just a baby in the manger. And the so what is this? Again, maybe we're going into a war zone. Maybe you're leaving this place and entering into a war zone later this afternoon or, or tomorrow morning. Maybe you're in it right now. There's lots to cook, presents to wrap, difficult people, kids hopped up on sugar. Maybe you're in a place where Christmas is just a painful reminder of loved ones lost. Maybe it's just a painful reminder of a time where you had more financial resources and can provide your children with more things. Maybe it's a painful reminder of friends who have moved on or betrayed you. And you will be, over the course of the next 48 hours, tempted to blow up or shut down. because of the never-ending task list, because your husband just keeps shoving cookies in your kids' mouths, because your mother-in-law keeps telling you how she would have cooked that ham, because of all the pressure. This text tells us that Jesus understands and he sympathizes. You come to earth. He came to earth. He took on flesh. He dwelled among his people. He became imminent, so that he could sympathize with his people. And he has given us the ability in those moments, in that war zone, in the middle of those difficulties, he has given us the ability to celebrate. He is the Christ, the son of the living God. And everything that you need is taken care of. He came to earth and he understands. And he went back up into the heavens and is sitting at the Father's right hand and he is talking to God the Father next to him. He's talking to God the Father about you. And he is mediating on your behalf. And he is saying that blood that I spilled on earth, that blood, it is speaking a word to God the Father. It is telling him that you are his child. And even when we do blow up or shut down or whatever, the heart, that's inside of us has been made new because of Jesus. And so that does not define us. How we react in those situations does not define who we are as a people. Both our sin and our sinfulness have been dealt with once and for all. And so in conclusion, kind of as we enter into the next few days, we say things like, remember the reason for the season. As Christians, we like to talk about that. Remember the reason for the season Toss that on a Christmas card. Put it on a throw pillow. We need to remember that the, all the reasons, not just one, but all of the reasons that Jesus gives us. A baby born in the manger is just the beginning. This is what we get as God's children, a great high priest who is interceding on our behalf. The reason for the season is not just not ending and not directing us simply to a baby in a manger, but to a bloody cross. A bloody cross that has 
purchased us back from sin, Satan, in the world. And an empty tomb then, three days later, that heralds the defeat of the final enemy, which is death. And then an ascension into heaven, a passing through the heavens, which means we have an advocate making an appeal before God on our behalf. And we celebrate Christmas for all of these reasons. We do not stop with a baby in the manger. These are all reasons for the season. So this morning, if you're here, just as a final thought, if you're here and you're wondering where you stand before God, if you're concerned about the performance that you need to put on for friends and family members and cooking and making things look beautiful and decorating and making sure that your children are well behaved, if you're worried about all of these things, if you're tr- trusting in your productivity levels this Christmas, or maybe you've been trusting in the peace that you think an afternoon this afternoon of watching football is going to bring you, or maybe you're praying that you wouldn't have to put up with all the family drama that's going on, or maybe you've been trusting everything but Jesus in these weeks leading up to Christmas, you have a great high priest who is talking to God on your behalf. And that high priest came to earth to die for you and defeated death and brought you back to God, restored the heart inside you that you could live forever in the presence of God, your father. And all you need to do is do exactly what this text tells us to. Paul in Romans 10 verse 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you're in Christ, that must become the most important thing in your life. If this morning you say, I'm in Christ, I know Jesus, I've confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, I have confessed with my mouth that Jesus is the Lord, and, and believed in my heart that God has raised him from the dead, and understand that that is my future, that that is my destiny, that I will spend eternity in the presence of God, then there is nothing in this life that does not pale in comparison to that truth. Everything that you do must be viewed through that lens and understood in life of it. We must understand that we must be completely and totally satisfied in who God is and nothing else. There is nothing else that can satisfy. There is nothing else that we can be content in except the person of Jesus Christ. And truly, to be satisfied in Jesus today And tomorrow on December 25th, and for every day into eternity, this is what we're called to as a people. As a people who are part of the local church, we're called to be consistently making that confession both with our lips and with the way that we act and the way that we live. This is not work that was required to get us to to God but a joyful response to what God has done for us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, a baby born in a manger who lived a perfect life, who died the death that we deserve, who went into the ground, was raised again, is ruling and reigning at the Father's right hand, speaking a word on our behalf before God the Father. This is the truth we must live in light of 
today, tomorrow, and every day into eternity. Let's pray.